This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Okay, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jamie Fugelson. I'm the Director of Congressional Relations at the Rand Corporation. And it's my pleasure to welcome you here today to today's briefing titled Lessening the Risk of Refugee Radicalization. Over 4.5 million Syrians have fled the region since the Civil War began. Just over 2,000 have been taken in by the United States, and thousands more have been recommended for admission through United Nations programs. Some fear that refugees will radicalize and supply militant groups like ISIS, as well as planned attacks in, United States, in the United States. But as Barbara will discuss in a moment, historical cases show that that is not inevitable. How does radicalization happen within refugee groups? What are the contributing factors, and how can the U.S. government work to mitigate these factors and safeguard the homeland? So leading today's discussion will be Barbara Sood. Barbara is a senior political scientist at RAND. Uh, she joined RAND after more than 30 years with the U.S. government, where she specialized in analysis of sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and counterterrorism. She received her B.S. in Arabic studies from Georgetown University and her Ph.D. in Near Eastern studies with a concentration in Islamic intellectual history from Princeton University. So with the introductory comments out of the way, I'm very pleased to turn it over to Barbara to start today's briefing. Thank you very much, Jamie. I just want to give you some background on this study. Um, we started because we knew there was great concern among American policymakers, Congress, and the general public that refugees, now fleeing Syria in large numbers, might be troublemakers or be inclined to harbor terrorists. Would camps be hotbeds for terrorism? We thought about previous situations. Hadn't those led to terrorism? The people who fled Afghanistan after the Soviet invasion seemed to be a case in point, leading to Al-Qaeda and other radical groups. And more recently, hadn't Kenya accused Somali refugees of contributing to attacks by al-Shabaab? We decided to do a systematic comparative case study of historical refugee situations with a focus on cases in which radicalization had been a serious concern. We looked at historical accounts and subsequent analysis and talked to refugee experts. We tried to identify the factors that most increased the risk and those that tend to, tended to mitigate it. We couldn't be completely exhaustive we are reasonably confident that the lessons are robust. First of all, what, are, what do we mean by radicalization? The process of committing to political and religious ideologies that espouse change through violence. The operative words here are ideologies and that they espouse violence. We decided to look hard at worst cases, worst in quotes, that showed some refugee involvement and militancy, including participating in insurgent groups, as well as terrorist ones. We didn't look in detail at why individuals radicalized. Other research that we examined in the course of this study suggested that an individual refugee's motives may differ little from those of non-refugees. What we found across these cases is that radicalization was by no means inevitable, and it didn't occur across entire refugee populations or for the entire period of the crisis. What made these situations different? 
I'm not going to go into detail on this chart, but you can see that we have some green, some red, and some yellow. So some are worse than others. Some from this, the same refugees going to the same countries, or same ethnic origin refugees going to similar countries did not have trouble, others did. So I will be talking about a few examples of these cases. First of all, Afghan refugees. Just to ref refresh your memory, um, Afghans escaped drought, then the Soviet war, and then the anarchic aftermath of fighting among factions uh, for the control of Afghanistan. Jihadi extremist groups from various countries spread their ideology among the refugees and, and among foreign fighters who helped them. Another case we looked at in detail was the Rwandan Hutus, who after the 1994 genocide in Rwanda fled to neighboring Zaire, which later became Democratic Republic of Congo, as Tutsi-dominated rebels moved into Rwanda. Militant groups pushed the refugees, uh, and the leaders of neighboring countries played ethnic politics that helped maintain radical elements and spread violence in the region. Another one is Palestinians in the Middle East, and here I'm looking at from 1967, basically. After Israel captured the West Bank and Gaza in 1967, the numbers of refugees added to those from 1948 increased dramatically. Those that stayed, now here you have a situation where those that stayed in Lebanon conducted cross-border attacks into Israel. They also conducted attacks from Jordan, which faced a near-Palestinian coup in 1970. But after Jordan forced the leaders of that group to go to Lebanon in the famous Black September period, um, the, uh, the level of refugee violence decreased <coughs> somewhat. Syria had refugee camps and housed militant group offices, but refugee militant activity from the, among the, from the camps was less there. Eritreans in Sudan. Eritreans were fighting Ethiopia for an independent state. Sudan supported them and tried to keep the refugees in camps, um, located in camps near the Eritrea-Ethiopia border, and they conducted cross-border attacks from there. Somalis fled famine and civil war in the early 1990s into Kenya, ending up in remote camps, such as the complex that became uh, Dadaab, which is the uh, largest refugee camp in the world, as well as some urban areas they settled in, such as around Nairobi. Radical groups in the beginning, like al Ittihad al-Islami, which was an Islamic extremist group, joined them in the beginning, and clan factions were also active that fought among themselves. But that factor diminished over time. So what happened in the worst cases, and we have identified six factors which we think are key. They overlap, but we're, we put them into categories because the way you address them might be different for policy, policy or humanitarian responses. First of all, what the host countries do is very important. Host countries often, when there was radicalization, host countries pursued inconsistent, even punitive policies toward the refugees. Cutting benefits as the numbers grew, pushing refugees into distant camps, restricting the UN and other international efforts. They imposed legal restrictions on refugees' ability to cope, to travel around the countries, to find employment or seek education. 
Lebanon, for example, kept the Palestinians as a stateless people without access to education outside the UN Relief and Works Agency system. And some exploited refugees for their own political and military ends, as happened in Zaire. The second factor, militants joined the refugees or the relief efforts. Organized militant groups sometimes fled with the refugees, such as in the Rwanda case, where they gained entree to relief efforts officially or educational programs, as in the Palestinian and the Pakistan case, cases. A telling, this is a picture of Palestinians, but a telling example is the way Pakistan, after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, linked refugee access to aid to membership in Mujahideen parties that Pakistan supported. They even provided the education. And a new class of uh, leaders emerged with, among the refugee population, including a fighter class. Then there was camp security. The host country is usually responsible for security, and NGOs and the UN might back that up. But in the worst cases, we found the, uh, they could not provide security to, for the refugees or ceded camp management to radical groups. For example, in the Democratic Republic of Congo case, the Rwandan Hutus controlled their uh, militant groups controlled aid flows and gained control of trucks and radios and other types of equipment. Or in the early Somali case, um, control of the camps was ceded to clan factions. In some of our worst cases, the refugees were confined to remote camps for the long term, with resources increasingly restricted. Kenya, of course, is an example. It's improved since. And some had to resort to makeshift locations with nowhere to go such as in Bangladesh and in the early days of Afghan flight to Pakistan. The, the opportunities for refugee youth and the uh, aid community defines these generally as between the ages of 15 and 24. They were torn from their culture, including coming of age rituals and the like that um, marked their transition to adulthood. And they had witnessed trauma. They'd seen people killed and they'd fled in fright. In our worst cases, they received poor education, no counseling, had few job options, and often perceived bias or injustice within either the local society around the refugees or within the refugee community, where the leadership was perceived as unjust. Moreover, locals, this is our sixth factor, saw refugees as receiving assistance they weren't getting in places where jobs and other resources were scarce, such as in Northwest Kenya, Bangladesh, or Ghana. That may be a factor today in parts of Europe, where refugees in large numbers appear to be competing while the economy is tightening. What the experts we talk to say is there's no purely humanitarian solution. Ideally, to resolve a refugee crisis, you would want to settle the conflict that sparked it as quickly as possible and send the refugees home. Often that's what the refugees would prefer to do, go home. Or, if that's not possible, settle the refugees permanently in the host country so they can start new lives. Or, if that's not possible, resettle them in a third country for the same reason. If none of these options are there, 
or are more difficult to achieve, our cases suggest there are a number of things that can be done to reduce the risk. One thing is getting multi-pronged multi collaboration across traditional lines of competition for donations with, among governments and specialized NGOs. What some of the experts we talked to called breaking down silos of aid organizations. There's some specialize in youth, some specialize in women, some kids and so forth, some health, but you need a collaboration of all those things, but they are competing for donor dollars. And ideally tailored to each crisis, to the local culture, and with consistent funding streams. When Pakistan first took in Afghans, they allowed them to move around. That's when you saw there was less problem. It was one of those yellow areas. They used vehicles they brought with them and developed a trucking industry in Pakistan and set up small shops. Those that fled to um, uh, Iran received uh, health and education and were also able to move around the country. In contrast to the situation in Lebanon where refugees were more restricted, Jordan eventually gave Palestinians citizenship and Syria allowed them to move around the country and find jobs. Militant organizing, transmitting a narrative of armed resistance or hatred, and militant control of humanitarian resources were key elements that we saw in radicalization. Armed groups should not be part of relief operations. So when you see, look at Tanzania, Tanzania had Rwandan refugees, but they did a better job of controlling them than they did, um, than Uganda did or uh, DRC did. But, they, but Tanzania, too, was less effective when it came to Burundian refugees, who they hosted but also sympathized with their cause. So they were willing to allow them to cross border and do attacks because they were sympathetic. Security. Security can be improved when the refugees are empowered to create their own organizations, not militant groups, and to help to govern their um, if they're in camps, govern them themselves, such as in Dadeb uh, today in Kenya. So if this is carefully set up, it can work. Uh, at times, the UN has been successful. For example, it set up a guard force in Kakuma, Kenya, one of the other camps, and also got international security assistant, assistance to, to host country police forces, such as the Tanzanian police. Again, this has to be carefully done because militant groups have sometimes come in in these situations. Now, refugees do in fact compete with locals sometimes, but they can contribute to the local economy. If the UN or NGOs are not restricted in what they can use some of their funds for, they can provide assistance to local areas, such as in, in uh, Kenya, developing a banking sector in some of the locales around around the Somali refugee camps, as well as creating environmental improvements in northeastern Kenya. For youth, first don't assume youth are violent. In the late 1990s, secondary education for Somali refugees in Kenya was dropped and crime increased. But that policy changed and recently a university level program has been started among Somali refugees. So they have something to look, look forward to, to plan their lives. Sports programs have been started to keep them off the streets, as some of the experts quoted to us, but they can have limited effectiveness because they don't have a permanent um, 
option, a future option that's visible to the youth. So cooperation with local businesses and helping out local businesses can help provide the type of jobs that these youth are looking for. How do these apply to the Syria situation? The UN Regional Refugee and Resilience Plan is a reason for optimism, but of course it will be a challenge to sustain. The needs are overwhelming and can be very expensive. Although host countries generally respect the refugees and allow them some freedom of movement um, to avert the problems that happen in the historical cases, this isn't necessarily true <coughs> everywhere. And they have been restricted in some locations, including still somewhat in Lebanon and in Egypt. Avoiding, um, deterring militant groups from gaining control has been, um, there are efforts being made to prevent that by making sure those who are registered refugees can be properly identified through biometrics, through proper registration. They're also provided vouchers or debit cards <coughs> that can only, in, at least in theory, can only be used by the person that received it. And assessments have been made of children who have been involved with armed groups and um, an effort has been made to uh, distribute literature to, to persuade against uh, radical recruitment pitches. We still have some concerns, however, because um, Jordan, for example, was hosting some former Syrian combatants. They were um, Syrian army or Syrian military and I'm not sure it was exactly army. Um, there were Syrian military or, or um, free Syrian army combatants in separate, they kept them in separate camps, but in late 2014, early 2015, they moved them in with the other refugees in, because they, their families were in the other refugees' camps, like Zaatari camp. So I don't know if that will cause a problem, but it's, our historic cases show it's a bad idea to take people who had the military background and organization and training and and get them involved directly with the refugees. And of course, we still see militant activity across some of the borders. Security, though, even within refugee camps, is better than it has been in the past. The facilities for Syrian refugees aren't as violent as those we saw in the historical cases. Local security forces are more capable. They have received UN instruction and help. Jordan has an awareness campaign to protect communities from gender-based and other violence. But in some locales, such as Eastern Lebanon, local um, um, municipalities have created their own security forces that abuse refugees. Some refugees are in camps, but the UN since 2008 has tried to place 80 to 90 percent of refugees in urban housing. They make an effort to register new arrivals and births. However, this is difficult for refugees as well. The environment they move into may be unfamiliar. Their, the personal resources they brought with them quickly uh, run out. And some, uh, we are warned by some of the humanitarian organizations, have resorted to begging and have even taken their children out of school to help out with the family income. And informal encampments of refugees are subject to destruction by locals. That happened in France and in Lebanon. The UN 3RP program is supporting local communities. 
It's creating water facilities for them and for both the refugees and the locals, sanitation. Um, it's refurbished schools um, for communities hosting refugees, which is in Egypt. And it set up programs for conflict mitigation of, of arguments among the locals and the refugees, such as in Lebanon, but that's Lebanon still a difficult situation. And the UN3RP pledges no lost generation, so children will not lose schooling because they had to flee. Refugees have been able to attend local schools in Iraq and Jordan, even the university level in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. And they receive grants for a university in Egypt. They get life skills training and some psychological counseling, but that is still something that often falls by the wayside. Um, schools have had to close in some areas, such as in Iraq, where more refugees meant that, more, that some of those schools had to be turned into shelters. To sum up, history demonstrates that survival is the refugees' highest priority. The risk of radicalization is not inevitable, and it comes later over time. Measures beyond humanitarian aid can help avert radicalization. The international commitment must range to areas, post-primary education, local development, that appear less pressing and are chronically underfunded or likely to be dropped over time. Because we have learned in our study that refugee crises tend not to evaporate as quickly as our attention to them does. Some, est some, some experts estimate they average 17 years. But the UN 3RP plan has some of the right ideas at least. The massive Middle East crisis means that the refugee burden is becoming overwhelming for host countries and donors, but a sustained effort can be made to address the factors that foster militancy. Several areas we have identified as important are still underfunded according to the most recent UN plan for 2016 and after. Livelihoods and social cohesion is only funded at 18%. Protection, that's the security at 44% shelter outside of camps at 28%. Education is a bit better at 57%. The United States this year nearly doubled last year's contribution to the plan and pledged $925 million and should persuade other donors to stay on track when the crisis appears to have gone on too long, as is often the phrase. This month's London conference gives us some reason for optimism. Donors pledged $6 billion. German Chancellor Angela Merkel, according to the UN press release, said it was important, the conference was important to show that this can be a day of hope. As her government pledged $1.3 billion for 2016 alone and announced a similar aid package for 2017. And where the U.S. can help is these responses have to include sharing expertise in militancy and terrorism, not just humanitarian aid, to prevent armed groups getting access to the refugees. That could be assisting host countries in policing or otherwise identifying the advent of militancy around refugee camps, such as propaganda efforts. This concludes my briefing. Thank you for your attention. Are there any questions? This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.